You're listening to Afrobeat Radio. I am Wui Jacobs. Our guest is Master Korafola Sona Jubate. We are listening to her music titled Gambia. Sona Jubate is a scion to a very long list of Master Korafolas and from one of the five principal Kora playing lineages from West Africa. She is from the Gambia. Her grandfather, a master Korafola himself, Amadu Bansang Jubate, migrated from Mali to the Gambia in the early part of the 20th century. Suna Jabate started studying the Kora at the age of three and is the first woman Korafola to rise to prominence on the instrument. She studied and plays the cello, the piano, and the happy scud. She is a composer as well and has composed for the Kora as well as film scores, a real pioneer and a champion of Mande music and women in music. The Kora is in my family, so I never was inspired to pick it up. I would say that I was uh, just able to pursue what my family and everyone around me is doing. I was taught from young, from my brother, and so he was studying also at the time. So um, my choice never came in early in my life. I would say the choice for me to pursue it came much later when I was in my late teens. Um, by that time, I decided that it's something that I wanted to do and to study to become a professional. But I already had so much um, training before me uh, at the time that I decided I wanted to dedicate it to seriously. Mm-hmm. So who was your first Kora teacher? My brother was my co- first Kora teacher. He was studying um, with my father and with my grandfather at the time. Oh, so he would study from them and then become your own teacher in the evening. Or when, exactly. When, <laughs> when you share time together. Um, that's exactly. T- that's today. That's right, today. Yeah, Jagere. Yeah, today Jagere. Tell us a little bit of your family heritage, however you want to tell it. I know you don't have much time, unfortunately. I would have asked if you would like to sing it as a griot. <laughs> yeah, uh, my family heritage, I think, is, uh, well, it's a very broad topic. I'm not sure where you would like me to start because it goes back over 700 years, but I'm not sure uh, how I can abbreviate it. But um, in terms of my immediate family, you know, three generations takes you back to the family in Mali. There's a lot of confusion over the, the surname of my family because in Mali it has a different spelling. So um, I remind people that it's in fact the same name um, as the, the same as the Jabate, D-I-A, spelling in the Mali. And that's the same family as mine, the one you find in the Gambia. So, you know, my grandfather's generation before, they uh, migrated down to Bansang. My grandfather was born in Bansang and from there he migrated to the Gambia. Um, I think this is one of the reasons why um, the connection with my particular family, not the Jubati family in general, but my family, is uh, there's a close connection between the Malian style of playing and the one um, than some of the other families who have been in the Gambia, of course, much, much longer. Um, but uh, at the same time, I always try to remind people it's in fact all the same. <laughs> we are all, it's all part of the same heritage, the same history. So, yeah, my family has been in the Gambia for a more recent amount of time. 
So the connections with the, the family in Mali are still very, very strong and a very important part of the identity of the family. So now you're a master of the Quran. It would appear that you were well-trained in Jalia by your male Korapin relatives. What was that experience of learning and training to play the Korah within your family and outside of the family as a music student like? I think for me, it, it has the experience of learning the traditional way, the traditional instrument and the way that it's taught traditionally compared with studying music outside, uh, very different, very, 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 very different. Um, but I'm so grateful having gone through um, the, the, what I will call some of the old approach because I don't see so much sometimes that approach being done by other people who are of the next generation. Even some of my own generation have, have not gone through the training processes that um, my elders have been through. And this is something my father talks about, you know, as well. Like, you know, the training process is very important. You must start at the beginning, and there is a beginning. Um, and the oral training, the years that you spend exposed to the to the tradition, is an intrinsic part of your development as a musician from that tradition. Um, so it's not just the time you spend with your hand on the instrument, it's also the time you spend with your hand off the instrument, listening and taking in the tradition from around you. So those are things which are, are so important. I was really fortunate to to be in an environment that I was able to train that way. Um, so, uh, you know, in the in the the time when I was younger, is something that I I to be honest, I didn't enjoy it much, you know, because I was a kid, I I wanted to play, you know, so I didn't really like the the, in the sometimes the time you would have to spend, you know, on something because it's all very much about repetition, getting it in your head, in your hands. Sometimes it was, you know, something I didn't really enjoy. I wanted to, to be more free to do other things. But I appreciated it, of course, when I get to an older age where you, you know that all, a lot of hard work has been done. And more importantly, that the, it's, there's a lot of things that I learned that I know cannot have been taught. Like, you know, you can't just read about it or you can't just be told about it. You must live that experience. You must, it must be internalized. So those are the things that I'm so grateful for. Um, and it's very different to the type of music training that I went into in, in in other traditions that is a different approach. You know, I think it's more hands-on. It's a lot more technical. Um, and there's less reliance on that back training. I don't know if you are, if mm -hmm. I make sense by saying that. The, the back training is very important in, in the core tradition very much. The playing of the... 21-string harp-like instrument was exclusively passed down from father to son and their playing is reserved only to certain families. So this, these are two important things. Mm. Women don't typically play the Korah. What was it like learning to play the Korah as a girl? I think the experience for me was was, um, was not as difficult as it could have been um, because firstly it was a private affair you know this is, this is not the kind of training where you know like my father even you know a lot of the training comes to uh, the act of supporting 
and the act of uh, being the accompanist for his father at all the important occasions, the naming ceremonies, the weddings, and so on in, in the village. Um, I, I was never doing those things. You know, this is something that was at home. It's something that was, you know, as I mentioned, either with my brother and later with my father in the house. So, and also once I was an age where, okay, I could have made a choice to go and uh, put myself in those situations, I decided against it. It wasn't something I was comfortable to do because of the fact that it's not a place for women. Um, so it was always something that was more of a private thing for me. And so coming out into the public eye to now stand as a woman with the Cora was at a time where I was already ready to present myself as a professional. Mm-hmm. And then again, not going into uh, you know the, the, the ceremonies that are taking place in the village. I'm going only for the, the performance stage. That is the international stage. That is the stage which is at a more of a secular kind of environment. So again, there's less room for uh, criticism and rejection in those spaces. Um, and I think that's the, the advantage of the tradition coming into a different age with every generation, things change. And uh, in the last few generations, the kora has, and not just the kora, but also the other griot instruments have become more of this type of solo instrument that people can listen to as a, as a, as a performance rather than it being an integral part of a ceremony. There's also now a new thing that's developed where this is an instrument, this is music that you're going to come and sit down and even pay money to come and listen to on a stage. Mm. So that has allowed people like me to also find a space where they're not going to be rejected uh, to, to stand with an instrument that traditionally is not what is supposed to happen. So it would have been quite a challenge for another typical Gambian girl like yourself let's say who is not of mixed heritage or on international scale, to, it would have been a challenge for them to, to go through that process back home. Yes, if they wish to put themselves in that traditional context, it would definitely be a big challenge. Even today, even myself, even with, the, even with myself and people knowing who I am, I still think that it would be challenging because you're also dealing with generational differences, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the type, the, the, the generation opinions are very different, you know. So it, I think there still would be something that I would not be comfortable to do. And it's something that uh, I've had opportunity to do since since becoming uh, more of the musician that I am recently, but it's something that I decline. Also, my own respect for the tradition is huge, you know. Um, so whatever everything that is broken, there also has to be a maintenance as well. So for me, it's uh, it's I do only what I'm comfortable to do and and not more. Um, so with uh, other women now, um, it is it I think it was it will be the same kind of story. You know, you there are openings now for women to take part in this tradition that were not there before, and there are plenty of spaces for that development to come. And still, we are at the very beginning stages of that. So it's something that has to be nurtured. So what have been your specific struggles relating to learning and playing the instrument publicly and and professionally? Um, I think my biggest struggle actually was more in uh, my years in Europe uh, than in Africa because I always couldn't understand. I couldn't always understand the African context. That bit I didn't under, I didn't have a problem to understand, and so it meant that my actions 
and what I decided to do was a lot easier for me because I know where I can go, I know where I cannot go, and it's quite simple. Um, in Europe, it's a lot more complicated. Um, you have the issues surrounding identity, you have the issues surrounding, um, you know, what kind of uh, culture are you represented? Um, you have a lot of complexity surrounding race. Um, and achievement and so on, and especially in the areas that I was that I was in uh, with the, um, the institutions that I was involved in, those were real big struggles for me growing up, and it's it it's part of what has made me who I am today. Um, going through that struggle and coming out the other side and still standing up and say, you know what, this is what I've come to represent, and I will always be proud to represent that, no matter what label is put on my head. So. That, I would say, is something that I think I struggle with more because I could never really understand it fully until I started to mature much more. That's very interesting. I'm very fascinated about this question. Do you consider yourself Afro-European or African? I'm getting something in your voice, and I, I just want you to speak to it yourself. I consider myself African. I don't have any confusion about my own identity for myself. I think what becomes complicated is the need for everyone else to label you. Um, you know, for me, I think as well, what I value more is my connection with the tradition. So whereas in my family, for example, we have a lot of uh, griots whose mothers are not from griot families and yet are integrated fully within the griot system. And I don't see myself any different from those people because it follows the same traditional practices. Um, but why it's so complicated is because we have the added issue of color. And that's a racial kind of a conversation and argument which makes things complicated for me unnecessarily because uh, my, what, who, the people I see myself as the same as, those people who, like I said, have mothers who are not from the Griot family but fathers who are, they don't have that complicated sort of, they don't feel they have to explain themselves to say, oh no, my mother is this or something because they don't have the color line. Mm -hmm. But because of the fact that I also have that color line, it's something that I'm forced to have to explain because everybody wants to know why is your skin not the same color as another person. So it's something that I struggle with and has forced me to have to try and analyze to give to people something that they can understand. But if it was not for that pressure for me to have to give that explanation to people, my own self-conscious understanding of who I am is totally unconfused. Mm. I know my identity. I know who I relate to. I know who have raised me. I know who have educated me. And uh, I know who have made me the person I am today. And that all lies pretty much squarely on that side of the family. Um, but a huge credit has to be given to my mother for allowing that, you know, because again, it's, you know, something that she is not able to understand, but she, she enabled me to be able to create those connections that that was never something that could stand in my way. So it's for me, not complicated, but it becomes complicated when you have to explain it to people. That's the problem. You are listening to Afrobeat Radio. I am Wee Jacobs, and my guest is Kurafula Suna Jibate.
this is quite fascinating. What is your thinking uh, or your thoughts as well as your relationship with contemporary urban youth movements? There's a movement in the United States. I don't know if you have a similar thing or if you've heard of this or if you have a similar thing in Europe. They call themselves Afropolitans. Afropolitans. Okay. Being somebody who's steeped in both professionally and in, in her identity, in her Africanness, I mean, there's no question about that. But in terms of contemporary global youth culture, what are your thoughts about that? Can you explain a little bit about this Afropolitan so I can understand? So when people are younger, there's always this urge to be modern, to be international, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. it, it creates a, a lifestyle, so to speak, or a perspective or a way of looking at life, right? So there's this contemporary mm-hmm. uh, youth movement, Africans, who are in the diaspora, who call themselves Afropolitans. And for somebody like yourself, um, would normally have fit into that category, you know. But mm-hmm. I'm wondering with your sensibilities and with your... Uh, choice to steep yourself in African identity and traditions, mm. do you have thoughts about how you navigate um, youth culture and what you do professionally? Um, okay, I think, okay, I can only talk from my own perspective. So this is how I, how I feel about this, this situation, I think. And it's a little bit what you talk about in terms of the I think a lot of different groups try to redefine themselves, re-identify themselves according to a certain criteria, whether they are in a new generation, modernity, and new connections to Africa, so on. But I, I kind of often like to charge like an elephant, you know, to the to the straight and short line. And for me, I sometimes get frustrated that there is this kind of sense of um, fear, and there's a sense of um uh exclusion and there's a sense of um detachment this continued detachment between africa and its members in the diaspora and i feel that a lot of the time africans in the diaspora are part of that continued problem of segregation between the people of africa and the people of africa in the diaspora for me there is nothing in the way of any single person standing up today and saying that I am an African. And there's no fear that someone should feel in that. And I think a lot of the problems come, again, still from a inherited subconscious um, issues that are carried in the minds of so many people who are connected with Africa in many complex ways because of the very complex history we have been through. Um, and I don't see similar things amongst a lot of other nations in the world. Um, you, it, it's a problem which frustrates me that we have to overcome with Africans um, to just stand up and say simply that I'm African. Even within the continent, you know, is a conversation I had only recently with one of my uh, uh, one of my employees. You know, and I work very hard on trying to develop um, professionalism, trying to develop um, a sense of um, excellence within. Um, the work that we do in in Africa, um, and then when you know they come into contact with people from abroad, who come and uh, 
they will very quickly start to hear the comments of, oh, but you guys are more like Europeans, you know, and it's often spoken in jest, in, in it's to be funny. But I said, this is a sign of the innate problems that we have. You cannot put Africa and professional almost in the same sentence without being told that, oh, it means you're becoming European. And even my dad complains of that as well. He even said it to me not long ago. And I said to him, you know, anytime you get these kind of things, you correct people and said, no, I'm African. And this is what it means to be a progressive African, getting our stuff together and representing it properly. And for me, I think the people of the diaspora also have to overcome those issues and go straight to the point. And if there's a connection to be had with the continent, make that connection. Don't try to build walls to try to segregate because now we have one people who are called Africa this and another people who are Africa this and another people who are this and this and this and this. At what point are we actually going to just join together and say that, you know, we, we are working all for the same ends and we are the same blood, the same identity. At the end of the day, we have the same goals in mind. This is just my opinion. Mm-hmm. So um, for me, it's like I want to mobilize youth in the continent, within the Gambia, starting in the Gambia, to be simply just proud of who they are. There doesn't need to be no clothing on top of you. There doesn't need to be no identity, branding, labels, or this or that. You are born African, born in the Gambia, and now start with there and end with that. That's it. Simple. And I think people in the diaspora also need to just have uh, more confidence to connect with the continent and understand that this land belongs to you just as much as anyone born and raised inside the continent. This is the continent for me needs the, the, the support and the input from Africans in the diaspora. And I feel like sometimes there's so many barriers put up between the diaspora communities and Africa that stops that connection being made in a positive way. Um, and it's something that I really hope will start to be overcome in the near future. That's what I hope for. As a young African, when you see African immigrants, I'm referring specifically to the crisis in Europe with immigration. How do you respond to Europe's response, given Europe's relationship with Africa, to immigrants coming to Europe? It's predictable. (laughs) I don't really see any... For me personally, I don't really see... Uh, I think the more I educate myself in how things have been before, the less surprised I am in anything that goes forward in the future. I see most of these things as very inevitable things that are going on. The fact that we are seeing immigration, the fact that we're getting the response we're getting from Europe, I just see them very much as predictable, inevitable, part of this chain that just keeps unfolding that I'm really wishing will go a different way rather than the predictable way. Um, because it's like the same patterns keep repeating in different forms. Um, so I'm not really, for me, I don't, I don't feel any surprise. I don't feel any, uh, and when I don't feel surprised, I lose the sense of passion to, to, to oppose, you know, because this is just things being played out the same and over and over again. What I'm really concerned about is now how we play a different game to stop that pattern, just keep repeating itself. And Africans now play a vital role in that repeating, you know, that repeating of that cycle going around and around. And this is why so much of my work is focused on dealing only with African communities in trying to change mentality, trying to change the way that people 
just think about themselves, the way they see their position within the world, always somewhere first before themselves. That is a huge problem that we have, which has a knock-on effect about with, with so many things. Um, I've worked, you know, worked with people in the Gambia who are, you know, one step away from getting on one of those boats, working on their mentality, looking at how you actually change them to try and think with their own feet before their head. You know, it's very simple. Um, the kind of assets that we have within just this tiny little country in, in Africa, the smallest country on the mainland of Africa, the amount of assets that we have within that country, nobody should ever be looking at stepping one foot on a boat anywhere. But people don't see it because, again, this is the product of how much, you know, hundreds of years of history that have come towards bringing us to where we are today. We are seeing the inevitable things playing out. If the things have still not, not been developed, mentality still not have been changed, education has not been addressed, all these things have not been addressed, the inevitable thing is people just start to leave. So we have to look at really starting with changing the problem at the source before we're going to see any change in the outcomes, which is those people arriving on the shores of Europe. So um, it's something that, of course, has to be done uh, together. And there are still you know, amazing organizations who are dealing with things at the other end. But for me, I see my place as really grounded as trying to work on those people who are in the continent and try to change that pattern from the source. Okay, so let's get to music stuff and also mm-hmm. and some fun stuff. Um, we understand that you have also opened an academy of music in the Gambia. Is this so? Yes. Is the academy just for Kora music or for music in general? Okay, so now this is something interesting because I had a conversation just uh, some days ago with another uh, paper in Edmonton and what I he they asked me to explain what is one of the major misconceptions that often gets written about you, and now I'm going to come to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the academy that I have um, is something which um, is about um, investing and redeveloping, redefining and uh, bringing out again our culture and music. So this is why it's a cultural and musical center, but. Culture and music are tools for something. They are not the end. They are only the tools for something. And they are actually, for me, some of the most powerful tools for social change. So all the things that we have just spoken to about up to this point is the reason why I have the academy setting up in the Gambia. Because these are the issues that I want to see change. I want to see change the whole idea and mentality of getting out. Europe is always better than where we are. Let us just get there and then we figure out our life after that. I want to change the status of women within the country in terms of their their uh, their position in, in the culture, their position even just, of course, within the musical setting. But that's, it does is, again, an inevitable thing that will start to change when you start to look at some of the very key issues that women face within the country. I want to talk about why we still, after how long, still struggle with basic things like electricity and water in our country. How can we develop without those things? I want to deal with all those issues. How do we deal with that? Is it politics? I don't see anything happening with that. It's, it, nothing's happening. Stalemate. So let's deal with something now that has currency. Music has currency in every single country in this world, uh, country in this world. 
culture also relates to every single person in this planet. So I want to use the most fundamental aspects of human existence to be able to penetrate cultures, societies, and then eventually the politics to be able to see what change can we make in a country by dealing with our people right up hands to hands. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So this is the aim of the academy. So when I was answering the question, what's the biggest misconception is this is a chorus school where people come here to have music and have fun. Yes, on the face of it, that's might what you're going to see. But the ambition for this cultural academy is very clear. It's there for social change. That's it. So how is it funded and how can people support the work of the academy? So at the moment, um, the team is, is building. Um, it's something that has been going on now. Um, I mean, the whole process has been from, from 2015. Um, so I kind of used the first few years just to set up the junior department. This was really just a way to test run the project, but also to gain attention and to prove what is possible within a few years. Now, moving to the next stage is really where the project is uh, ultimately headed from the beginning. Um, and now, you know, we have um, a, a great team that's come together uh, that's spanning from the U.S. In, and, and to London to, of course, the team in the Gambia also, um, but then smaller groups of people who are in other countries like Italy and France and so on. It's a very collective affair, which I basically mod put, put in together um, depending on what people can bring to the table. So whether it's funding, um, and there's you know, someone who takes care of that side of things, but whether it's funding or whether it's bringing in expertise, because this is something that we really need in the Gambia. We need expertise. So this sometimes can even be more value than, than money, which can only be spent once. Expertise can be brought in again and again, and it has a knock-on effect in the communities that we bring in that expertise to. So this is something I'm always encouraging people, you know, if, if it's not money, you know, something that can be even more valuable than that is to bring your expertise. Do you have expertise in, in uh, sound engineering? Do you have expertise in dealing in, uh, you know, women's rights and oppression, how we deal with targeting women in communities, especially rural communities? Do you have uh, expertise in nutrition, in hygiene, in health, and all these kind of things? Galvanizing these people and running the projects, which is what I've been so doing so far uh, with the, the volunteers coming through. Uh, in the junior department is setting up these courses with the children, with other people also to try and share this kind of expertise. But the beauty of the academy is it centralizes it. So it's not just, you know, something that comes in for a month and when the person is gone, that's the end of the project. Now it's about bringing in the expertise and then leaving it behind so that all of the investments are sustainable. That's what's really important about the project and making it an academy. And do you have a website yet? Yes, it's there. It's um, thegambiaacademy.org. Thegambiaacademy.org. All right. So do you teach Cora, the instrument? Um, I personally have stopped teaching for the past, I'd say, probably four years now. Um, I, to be honest, it's not much apart from I just don't have the time anymore to teach. Um, I love teaching. Um, I always have, and I taught for about nine years, but... Now, yeah, I, I don't have the time because, you know, running the academy and, and touring as well full time and then obviously running the business, you know, there's hardly time for me to sleep at night, never mind to start teaching again. So, mm. you know, it's something I look at maybe, you know, when I when I slow down a little bit, um, 
it may be something that I will look forward to going back to, but at the moment it's not in the schedule. Listening to Afrobeat Radio, I am Wee Jacobs, and my guest is Kurafula Sona Jebati. So let's talk about the Kora. How many different tunings does the Kora have? has quite a few. I mean, it depends in the region and so on. My grandfather um, is, to my knowledge anyway, the last one of my immediate family who really was expert in some of the older tunings. So he had another three tunings on top of the two standard tunings that we use. Um, but it didn't really transfer too much to the next generation. My father, of course, used to play in those tunings when he was studying with my father with his father sorry but it's not used so much i think the reasons for that is because of the fact that uh, um, there's so much more globalization going on now and the chora wants to sound you know more um, understandable to all the different cultures from around the world we have you know some these exponents like tumani or those people who are taking the chora to a new level in terms of what can collaborate with but that also brings an effect to the tradition at home where it means that most people default to the standard tunings that can be translated to um, cultures in in Europe and uh, different parts of the world so they start to get lost and my generation I don't know many many that use it so much now um, who are you know working internationally and so on is not really used. Mm-hmm. Are there records of some of the older tunings and what are some of their names? If you know, of course, yes, there are. My grandfather recorded, I believe, um, was the vinyl recording that was released before I was born. <laughs> um, but he t- had a tuning which is called Haldino mm-hmm. and Wardino. These ones were different from the ones that I played, Sauta and Tomara. So um, they're, you know, things that people can go into study and get very familiar with those kind of uh, tunings. You can, of course, play all the repertoire that is played on those tunings in, in the other two tunings as well, no problem. But um, it's more of a refined tuning, I would say, a very refined. You have to have a good ear for that. Uh, and what factors go into the decision of using a particular tuning for a particular song? Is it the topic or lyrical content? Um, no, it's not the topic. I would say that, I mean, just like any, this is a tradition that is passed down from generation to generation. So what I choose to play in what key is the way I have been taught it. So I know this song is in that key, this song is in that key, this song is that key, and that's how you are taught it. And that's the way you continue it. And then when you pass it on, you do the same thing. So I don't, I have not really i mean maybe there is some research someone can do to find out does he have the origins of why that tuning was chosen at the time but i don't know i've not been taught or i've not heard of any uh, particular reason why a certain tuning is uh, for that song and not for another one mm-hmm. who are your musical influences well, oh, or some of i don't know who what are some of. <laughs> 
Um, okay, let's put it this way. Let's put it this way. Who are some of your musical influences outside of your family? Okay, outside of the family, uh, well, the family is uh, is a big one. So that means that I can't talk of many of the choral players since they're all inside the family. But oh. um, <laughs> I think even so, I still have to mention that, you know, of course... Uh, hugely in my core plane is my father and my brother. I think that's, I have to say that. Uh -huh. um, but as a maturing musician looking to sort of, you know, gain influence through just my own research, um, I would say uh, from outside of the tradition in so many different worlds, I, I listen to a lot of um, this one musician who's called Elgberto Gidmonti. He's from Brazil, guitarist Mm -hmm. um, he was one of the first musicians that I listened to that was outside of like the mundane tradition that I really um, touched me, you know, it, mm -hmm. because although I used to enjoy a lot of music, no one really touched me like the music, music from the mundane style, you know. So he was one of the first that I heard when I was like 12 that I was like, wow, you know, I can feel this music so much but it's not i don't know it this is not my tradition nothing to do with me so i think that was a big opening for me to start realizing you know it's not close open your horizons you know mm -hmm. um there's also of course classical musicians because i had i studied classical music for some time so i guess i enjoyed it to some degree but i learned a lot about it it I don't know if it's something I would always choose to play myself, but it's it's I learned so much, so I have to say that influenced me a lot, especially in uh, um, my work in developing as a composer, so doing orchestra composing, doing film scores, and so on. Without my training and uh, the education that I receive in in that kind of music, I, I would not be at that stage to be able to work in that in that way. Mm -hmm. um, and also, you know, later in life. You know, from other parts of Africa, you know, people like Loko uh, Kanza, uh, you know, that just such power in their in their in their musical forms. For um, Mali, I used to love always growing up. Uh, that one is uh, uh, staple for most people. Um, and yeah, I think a million and one other people who I can't think of right now because my brain seems to have stopped ticking. Yeah, but yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, there are so many, so many from different traditions that have helped to make me who who I am today. Sara Tavash, another one from Portugal, another one. Yeah, so many. Yeah, uh, but socially, socially outside of work, who are you listening to? I go through these periods of listening to one particular artist or a kind of instrument or. Um, mm. you know, a voice. Sometimes I just want to hear voices, women singing, and I, you know, Nina okay. Simone. Sometimes it's just one particular artist. Sometimes it's Sona Jabata, believe it or not. And oh, I, <laughs> okay. That's, that's good to know. Um, at the moment, I, I, I think for me it's difficult because music is is never a leisure for me. Um, so if I put music on, it's, my brain starts working you know like i can never work and have music at the background it my it doesn't work for me um so it's like the music when i listen to it has another function you know i'm, I'm listening to it for a particular reason you know maybe i'm writing a song at the time that i want to draw influences from so i start listening listening to certain artists for that purpose um so it's not necessarily just because i i like to listen to them it's, it usually always has a functional purpose for me music um, but I think at the moment I've I've listened a lot to Sarah Tavash. I've, I've listened mm -hmm. a lot to um, 
local has actually recently because I went to see him at the Africa Festival, so it made me again to start going over his music again. Um, some of his live performances are amazing. Um, in the jazz, I've even started to listen a little bit because I've never listened to jazz much, but I started listening a little bit to that, just I'd say really this year, last year. So that's kind of a new thing for me, you know. Um, I'm not great at naming the names, but I've started to listen in the genre a lot more because I find, again, I'm trying to take out and learn something a little bit from some of the styles that, uh, you know, some of the techniques they use. So that's why I started listening to that genre more recently. Uh, and then contemporary styles of music, say neo-soul, Afrobeats, Kwaito, and even hip-hop, you know, music that is is somewhat more derived, so to speak. Do you have any particular thoughts towards them? I enjoy some of it, yeah. I like I think that's probably the few musical genres I can listen to for entertainment and my brain doesn't go too active that I can actually just enjoy it. Uh-huh. Um so yeah, I think I'd probably like to listen to that music when I'm when I'm on off time, downtime, <laughs> where I know I won't start analyzing anything in the music. So um I like a some of these Nigerian stuff, you know, um, you know, the youngsters and the kids love this stuff. So, and I've right. been, you know, force fed it to be honest. Um, but at the same time, I do. I've started to enjoy it, you know, as well. And it's very, very popular in the Gambia as well. So, you know, wherever you go, it's, it's everywhere. So, yep, yep. you know, I've kind of got more into that recently. Um, and uh, and yeah, we, not so much hip hop for me, but um, you know, um, I think yeah, I'm more of the kind of R and B soul meets yeah the afro beat kind of thing for me mm. thank you very much for joining us it's a real pleasure to talk to you thank you You're take welcome. care all right